future generation acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Twofold is a new podcast series from Future Generation. At Future Generation, our purpose is twofold. We generate wealth for our shareholders by giving them access to top fund managers, and we invest to change the lives of young Australians. And we've already given over $52 million in the past six years to a variety of youth-focused charities. I'm Caroline Gurney, the CEO of Future Generation. Every month, I'll be speaking to leaders about their two driving purposes in life. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome my good friend, Natasha Stock Despoia. Hi, Natasha. Hello. Natasha has been on the public stage, both here and abroad, for nearly 30 years. She's the youngest woman to ever enter parliament. She's a former leader of the Australian Democrats, and she currently sits on the United Nations Committee for the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. In between all of that, she's founded a not-for-profit. She's written a book, which I had the honour of hosting the launch of in Sydney. She has served on countless charity boards, worked for the World Bank, and been named as one of the top 100 global influencers on gender policy. There is way more. She is such an overachiever. But if you want the full list, have a look at Wikipedia. But what isn't on Wikipedia, although it might be after this podcast, is that Natasha is one of the world's best chocolate givers. Whenever somebody's sick, celebrating a career win or suffering a setback, Natasha can be relied upon to send a box of chocolates and to bring them to board meetings. So Natasha, I really hope you have that rather large box of chocolates I've sent you to give you a sugar hit while we're speaking. And also I hope they're on brand. They're absolutely spectacular. I like to think of myself as a bit of a brand ambassador for Hague's or any South Australian chocolates, Caroline. So I'm feeling very uh, sugar hit today. Um, thank you. Um, and chocolate frogs are always my favourite. Um, but uh, I think it's the reason that people put me on boards now. I, I, it has nothing to do with my merit anymore. I'm convinced of that. It's just if I bring the chocolates, they'll, um, they'll put up with me. Uh, That is actually very true. I love a board meeting when you're there because I know you'll bring the chocolates, but also (laughs) the fact that you bring so much wisdom in the room. But to kick off, Natasha, I spoke earlier about Future Generation and its twofold purpose, which is the title of our podcast. So what are your two main objectives in life? Well, thank you. First of all, thank you for the opportunity to be part of your very first podcast. I love the title of your podcast and actually narrowing down to two objectives is very hard, but I have always considered uh, my role in life, um, certainly something that drives me, is the idea of creating change, positive, progressive change. I want to make a difference, and that's what spurred me into politics um, and to different areas of of work and life, and mainly focused around the concept of fairness and equality and specifically gender equality. So I feel very strongly that that's been an objective. Uh, You know in life that happiness is quite elusive, but the ability to make a difference is, is what has certainly driven me. And I guess the other thing these days in a very personal sense is, you know, being a a good mother, a good role model, a good parent uh, to my children. I want to instill in them really 
wonderful, healthy, ethical values so that I hope, um, I don't insist, but I hope that they go on to have similar objectives and to try and make the world a kinder, fairer, greener, uh, more equal place. I can I can see now why I've been such a fan of yours for so, so many years. I mean, you know, we, we've been friends for a while. I mean, I was at your 50th and um, I've been to your home in Adelaide. And in fact, your husband, Ian Smith, who is one of those major political and business influencers, actually introduced us. Um, but really what cemented the fact that I admired you so much was really when you invited him onto the board of our watch. But the reason, you know, you actually founded that and you set us up um, to, to really succeed in that area. So maybe could you tell us a little bit more about what Our Watch does and, and why did you found it? Well, I can't take all the credit. Um, you're very kind, but in actual fact, it is the brainchild of two wonderful political women and in a very unusual twist, two women on different sides, so-called, of the political spectrum. The former Victorian Minister for Families, Mary Wooldridge, uh, really initiated the concept of a national foundation to prevent violence against women and their children. And she worked absolutely collaboratively with her Labor counterpart federally, Julie Collins, to found uh, this extraordinary national body. And that was back in 2013. And they approached me very early on in the piece to see if I would be the inaugural chair and try and help grow uh, this organisation into what is now a truly national body. And as you would know, we've seen every state and territory, uh, as well as the, as the Commonwealth, of course, uh, join on to uh, this organisation, which has the primary function of primary prevention. So stopping violence against women and children before it starts. And we know that Australia has been a world leader in this form of prevention, uh, whether it was to do with, you know, sun and skin care, whether it was to do with the issue of uh, smoking and tobacco and preventing um, people from uh, taking up smoking, uh, whether it's seatbelts, you know, so safe driving. Um, we've been a world leader and we have now translated that into uh, groundbreaking work nationally on the issue of the prevention of uh, violence, family violence, domestic violence and sexual assault. You can't actually now listen, you know, to the radio, turn on the TV without hearing about domestic violence, especially during COVID and what's actually happened. So, I mean, I've, I'm just recovering from COVID now and it was really quite bad. So I can't actually imagine what it would have been like to be trapped in isolation with a person who was abusing me. Obviously, we've talked a lot about domestic violence. I mean, what have you seen in the past two years? How has it um, really exacerbated the domestic violence epidemic in our country? Is that something that is now quantifiable? Look, it, there are many reports and they all point to the fact that COVID has exacerbated inequalities generally uh, across the world and in Australia, but specifically uh, in relation to the role, the work, the opportunities and the health of women. Uh, we have vast amounts of evidence to show uh, an increase in uh, violence generally, including physical and financial and emotional abuse, as well as, and this is hardly surprising, uh, an increase in online 
uh, violence and bullying and abuse. In fact, in 2020, as I recall, during the Easter, I think it was long weekend alone, there was a 600% increase in reports of online uh, attacks and violence. And I think those statistics are just scratching the surface of what we've seen, not just domestically, but across the world. Uh, women have been described as the shock absorbers of the pandemic because of its quite disproportionate impact on women, partly because of the exacerbation of, you know, rigid gender stereotypes. You've sort of seen a reverse, you know, reverting to very traditional roles for women in terms of caring, not only for children, but also older um, parents and loved ones. But you've also seen many women on the front line, whether that's in caring professions, in teaching, in health, in nursing, so and cleaning. So for women generally, it has put our rights back considerably. And that means we have to have women's and girls' rights in the forefront of the work that we do, whether it's in a budget and policy work in Australia or whether it's across the world in terms of multilateral policy, we really need to centre gender equality as part of the, um, I guess, the reform or the, um, you know, coming back from uh, this awful period. And I hope you're feeling better, by the way, after talking me up on the chocolates. I don't think I sent you any medicinal <laughs> chocolates and I, would, I, know, but I, I need didn't to actually, improve. I didn't actually tell anybody I had it until pretty much afterwards because I just wanted to be left alone. Um, but I, I, I think what you said in terms of, you know, domestic violence and those physical injuries and bruises, um, you know, it really affects women and children in so many ways. And that leaves them very vulnerable to mental ill health and homelessness as well. And, you know, that's incredibly close to my heart because that's really what future generation is about on the social impact side in focusing on mental illness prevention and youth at risk. As you say, the main cause of domestic violence is gender inequality. And yet, you know, Australia is this amazing, privileged, developed country. And our record on domestic violence is, is really not good. Are we all really trying to figure out how to fund it and how to make a real impact because i think we know what works but how do we actually make it happen so there's a real impact oh there are so many things there i guess the first point is something you referred to earlier and that is the level of community awareness and understanding obviously that's grown exponentially uh, even in the last decade let alone the last 40 50 years and we have crucially an evidence base that does show you know, the drivers of this violence. And we know that there's no one single issue of violence uh, against women and children, but we do know that higher levels of this behaviour are linked to a number of uh, attitudes and behaviours, including the notion of, you know, rigid gender stereotypes, uh, the, the idea of limiting women's independence financially or otherwise, uh, the issue of, you know, male peer relationships that uh, emphasise aggression or condone disrespect uh, of women. So there are, the drivers are becoming so clear that yes, we can now begin to address them. And this is the positive message that is really important to get out there. And that is that violence against women is preventable. It's not an inherent part of our biological condition. It's actually something we can stop. So how do we do that? Well, 
If we know that gender inequality is at the core of the problem, well, clearly gender equality is at the heart of the solution. So we start to address some of those inequalities in our society, whether it's in our defence force, our media, the representation of women in sport, you know, representation of women in parliament, decision-making institutions, uh, all of those issues you start to examine and see how you can create a more equal, ethical, fairer society. But you also require uh, goodwill or political will and comes with that, you know, resources and the idea of ensuring that as human beings, as leaders, as politicians, wherever your work and role may be, including vitally as parents and caregivers, that we also model respectful, healthy, ethical relationships. Certainly, I'm a big fan, as you would expect, of political will and resources that goes into turbocharging not just policy reform, but cultural change. And cultural change is tough and it takes time, but we have the evidence base now, so there's no excuse, no excuse for us not to do something about it. It's, it's just incredibly sad, but I think, you know, what you're saying also is that politicians really need to lead, you know, with our leaders in the country. And, I mean, you obviously were in Parliament House, you know, the youngest woman to ever enter. Um, so what was it like for you, you know, back then? I remember you once saying that you felt like a novelty, um, you know, you wore, you wore your Doc Martens and everybody sort of reported in it across all the media, you know, um, and maybe, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. But then also, you know, what's your what's your view of the current crop of women who are coming forward, who are really, you know, calling out um, on the actual current culture? Well, I guess I can't help but giggle um, when you refer to me as the youngest woman to enter federal parliament, obviously it's a record of which I'm very proud, but now that I'm a woman in my 50s, um, I sometimes uh, make people laugh overseas when they look at me and they go, gosh, if she's the youngest woman to ever enter the parliament, what's the average age of the place? And I have to explain, no, I was in parliament a long time ago, um, certainly, yes, 26 years ago. Look, there is a link between leadership and women's representation in politics and leadership roles and the issue of addressing violence against women and girls. So unashamedly, I am very passionate about increased representation of women in all our diversity and difference in our decision-making institutions because we know it matters, we know it works. But of course, there are other ways to achieve change and I'm not suggesting, you know, parliaments are the only way. You know, my experiences as a relatively young woman, and let's face it, 26 isn't that young, but certainly I was a novelty. I mean, we had a very, the community still does, but certainly back then had a very stereotypic notion of what constitutes a leader or a politician, you know, certainly a senator, you know, male, um, pale, uh, you know, middle class or privileged in a way that most of us couldn't even begin to relate to uh, at that age, uh, you know, when I got in, 14% of the, you know, parliament was female. So it was a very marginalising um, environment. And so to be relatively young or, you know, to wear sensible shoes or, you know, all of those things that you associate with being a, you know, young person who hasn't been, you know, skilled in the art of giving political answers, you know, I was just honest, maybe a little naive, but I was passionate and I knew my stuff. And that's the reason that I guess I... 
I survived, but it wasn't easy. And I was subject to, as some of your listeners may even remember, you know, ridiculous stereotypes and comments and sometimes debilitating experiences. And, you know, people have seen this played out in recent years. It, you know, harassment, sexism, unwanted attention, um, physical and, and otherwise. So the one thing I take heart from as many women who've been in politics or indeed who are still in parliaments is that you do create role models. You do set a standard. You start to show that we can, you know, we can be what we can see. And so that made me happy that there is a, a steady trail of women, particularly young women, who did enter politics after me knowing that they could do it because someone like me had been able to do it. So I think that, you know, that the leadership piece is important. Politics is important. My experiences at the time ranged from debilitating, laughable, sometimes horrendous. I mean, Carolyn, the first business lunch I went to, I was asked if I went into politics to find a husband. I, I mean, I often <laughs> laugh, despite the calibre available, that was not my motivating factor. So I like to think things have changed. And to your, you know, you know, your last point about, you know, these experiences aren't new, but what is new are these extraordinary young people, uh, young women in particular, um, who are calling out these bad behaviours. They're exposing, you know, shameful truths. You know, the Grace Thames and Brittany Higgins of the world is only two examples are shining a light on some pretty uncomfortable truths. And there are women from all backgrounds uh, who are part of this movement. And when I say women, there are men, women, um, you know, non-binary, you know, it, there is however people choose to identify. You are seeing a lot of young people just say, we're not putting up with this. And that gives me great hope for the future. I mean, I think it seems to be taking such a long time for change to really happen. I mean, you were in politics, as you rightly say, 26 years ago, but it, we're still talking about the same issues. And I think there are some very brave women that have stood up in the past sort of five, 10 years, and more so now, I think, that are actually calling out the system. And it's such a, I mean, when you talk about you know, the, disillusion, this, the disillusionment in Australian politics right now, you know, we've got gender equality, climate change, accountability, um, and we're seeing that rise of the independent movement and people turning away from the major parties around the edges. I'm not actually sure exactly how sort of whole scale it is. So with that sort of current political climate, you know, is it is it sort of time for a change? Is it a return you know, for a party like the Democrats. I mean, wasn't the tagline, keep the bastards honest? I love that. I remember being in the UK and hearing that thinking, oh, wow, they can do so much in Australia. <laughs> um, that was the greatest um, unofficial slogan of a political party ever. But uh, even that was interesting because um, uh, polling was uh, conducted that showed that the men saying that was okay but when the then leader used that expression and I used it, so basically any women used it, um, it actually didn't poll well. So um, people were offended. So we always used to say, we'll keep them honest. Um, it was quite extraordinary when you look back on that 26 years ago. But look, the pace of change is slow. I'm hugely disappointed at the woeful pace of change. I think that women in 
politics, particularly for me, um, has been heartbreaking, not just the experiences that we've seen exposed, particularly in recent times, but the lack of parity. I thought by the time I was in my 50s that we would have equal numbers of men and women and hopefully our diversity and difference reflected and represented, and that hasn't happened yet. And that's a problem if you really believe in a meaningful representative democracy. But we should rejoice in some small victories. Please don't think that just because the pace has been slow that there hasn't been progress and there's been extraordinary progress, including on the issues dear to our hearts, including the issue of uh, violence against women and our understanding of gender equality generally and indeed the issue of gendered violence specifically. We've seen progress in terms of the positions that women are holding, um, women's levels of education, uh, changes in the home, but none of this has happened fast enough and it does need to be turbocharged. And again, as I say, it's not just about the policies or the regulatory frameworks. It is so much about goodwill and it's so much about cultural change and that is such a generational thing. It does take time to change people's attitudes and behaviours. And we are getting there. We've got national community attitude surveys that tell us clearly that views are changing, especially among young people. But when you still have a fifth of the population that believes that men make better leaders because they're less emotional than women or more rational, yeah, you've got some work to do. And I would like to see... Um, I'd like to see more work, whether it's in our workplaces, whether it's in our schools, indeed in our representative institutions or on our sporting fields. There is so much work to be done. But look, I don't know if any of your listeners paid attention to the South Australian election. I'm not being partisan about this, but what I am excited by is what looks like almost parity in our state parliaments. Mm. And our parliament is the first in Australia, the only one left that's never had a female Premier or Chief Minister. So we've got a long way to go considering we were the first place in the world to grant women the right to vote and stand for Parliament, you know, back in 1894. So there's a lot of change that could have happened more quickly and uh, I'm confident that perhaps the next generation will help us with that. What do you think about the independence? I mean, do you think that that is really going to challenge the status quo at the moment? Definitely. I think that's part of that change. I mean, I laugh, you know, my slogan as leader of the Democrats in the 2001 election, such a fraught and vexed election it was, but was change politics. And I do think that there is a sense now that people aren't complacent. They don't want to put up with the same old, same old, that the two party rigidity never really suited us. And while that's not going to be broken down very quickly, the idea that people are looking at independent voices and particularly women says something about our system. It may not change overnight, but it will change. And I am confident that there's an appetite for something better, whether it's in terms of behaviour or procedure or indeed in policy. People are not, not they're not apathetic. They're certainly cynical and sceptical but I love the way that that's been channeled into change. And I hope, I hope that the women's vote, if there is such a thing these days, will actually see change because there is absolutely a dire need for more women in our federal parliament. And I suspect those female independents will be a part of that momentum. I think you're right. I can really see that happening. I 
I know that family and community is incredibly important to you. And obviously you're the mother to two children, Cordelia and Conrad. Um, how, and I've always wanted to ask you this, but never actually asked you, you know, how, um, how do you actually discuss, um, you know, gender equality and domestic violence with with your with your children in that sort of age appropriate way as they go through different stages and how how do you talk to them about respectful relationships what that actually looks like so that you know they're a bystander in the right way and they never end up as a victim or 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 an abuser but they actually know what to do when they're in a situation and how they can actually change that situation for the best? Oh, that's a really, it's actually a tough question because obviously our focus at our watch and elsewhere has been about, you know, age appropriate education on respectful relationships. And the one thing that we know is that it has to be multifaceted and it has to be in all the places where we live, love, learn, work and play. So it's not just enough to have, you know, your mum and dad modelling, you know, equal relationships or sharing the chores or speaking in a way that doesn't, you know, condone disrespect against men or women, boys or girls or anyone because the messages that come from so many other parts of our lives are so strong. So, you know, I've often told the story about, you know, my son, you know, getting certain messages from me and his dad and then you know, playing sport and, you know, being told that he's a mummy's boy or he's kicked like a girl. I mean, these things thankfully are not happening as much, but they do still happen. Uh, The messaging through popular culture and media, whether it's, you know, Married at First Sight or whether it's a pop song's lyrics, these have huge influences on our children. And I guess for someone like me, I've got to be careful that I don't almost... uh, for lack of a better term, overdo it, because I suspect those of you out there with teenagers will know that uh, hmm, they do rebel a little bit. And sometimes, you know, Conrad will say, Mom, come on, not everything's about gender equality. And I've got to go, "Um, actually, nope, just hold it there. We'll just move on. But I also tell the story of my, you know, daughter Cordelia when she was much younger and she was in the car with my husband Ian and son Conrad and, you know, Ian, um, went past, a, you know, a, a car yard and said to Conrad, oh, look, you know, check out those cars, son. And Cordelia piped up and said, oh, what, Dad? Girls don't like cars. So, um, you know, my kids certainly keep um, us on our toes as well. Um, and, you know, I've been really proud of little things that I've heard that Conrad's done because I don't underestimate sometimes the peer pressure on boys as well as girls, but to not you know, get too caught up in these discussions. And, you know, he didn't tell me little things like one year he initiated the, um, you know, the ribbons for International Women's Day at school. But um, if you draw that to his attention, he said, oh, don't, Mum, you don't want to talk about it. So, yeah, I guess the thing is to remember there are so many influences on uh, young minds and it's not just the parenting or not just the school's responsibility and not just on the sporting field. It is the intersection of all of those things but as parents or guardians or caregivers the one thing that we can do is model those relationships ourselves that is the single biggest influence at the moment but closely followed by um celebrities 
and sporting stars. They're hugely influential. And as you would know, Carolyn, that's why we use them in our watch as key ambassadors and, and role models because we know young people, they're not going to listen to, you know, Conrad's 52-year-old mum, but they might listen uh, to someone who is a brilliant cricketer or AFLW player, etc. I think that's exactly right. Just one final question, because I could actually talk to you all day, and the time obviously is running out. Um, you have a really full plate, like you have so much that you've done that you're doing now. But you know, what what is next for you? When you wake up first thing in the morning, what do you think? And next I want to be? You know what? I don't know if I've ever thought that way. Isn't that funny? Um, I just find I've been very fortunate that life's headed me in certain directions. Some of it's hard work, some of it's luck, some of it's a whole range of things, of course. But uh, admittedly, when I wake up in the morning now, um, because I'm on a United Nations treaty body, as you mentioned, they're working through the night in Geneva. So I wake up to an enormous number of terrifying emails. So um, I sort of think, oh, gosh, <laughs> wouldn't a bit of a break be nice? But more seriously, I I love the fact that I'm, I'm so fortunate to have a, a, an interesting mix of things. So whether it's not-for-profit boards like Carrie's Beanies for Brain Cancer or in the past, you know, wonderful Our Watch, um, I'm fortunate to be on the Australian Ballet Board, which, you know, when we talk about all these big, tough issues and violence against women haunts me. It is it is a tough issue with which to deal, let alone those people who are extraordinary people on the front line, you know, working every day to keep women and children safe. So for me, what, what revives us, what keeps us energised for me is culture and it's, it's the arts and it's ballet and it's music and reading. So that's the stuff that I love to do. But in the meantime, I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'm lucky enough to work for Deloitte as a principal advisor, particularly on these issues and associated issues of cultural change and diversity. But I think the UN will keep me pretty occupied for now. And I do love, there's no question, I've always loved that international focus. Um, But my main aim, if I could say anything right now, is I will not rest until I see more women represented in powerful bodies but particularly in parliament and I will live vicariously through others I don't think Australia is really ready for a return from me um, but I will do my best to support women across the political spectrum obviously with uh, a view they've got to be committed to progressing the rights of women and girls and children Um, but that will be my focus and I will continue till my dying day to to work on that so yeah, full plate, Caroline. That's it's all good, but literally full plate because I'm sitting here surrounded by Hague's chocolate. So, you know, don't don't feel too worried about um, my afternoon. I know what's ahead of me today. Oh, well, thank you so much. I, I would love you to return to domestic politics without a doubt. But thank you very much for your time and speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you. Thank you so much, and good luck with your wonderful work. <laughs>